Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Opportunity Starts at Home podcast, where we explore the deep connection between housing and opportunity across the nation with experts from various sectors, from health to education, to racial equity, to climate, and much more. My name is Chantel Wilkinson. I am the campaign manager of the Opportunity Starts at Home campaign. The campaign is about bringing voices into housing advocacy that are not typical housing advocates and using these new partners to advance federal affordable housing policy. This campaign has come together at a critical moment with housing advocates recognizing the crisis has reached enormous heights and advocates and leaders in other sectors recognizing that fixing the housing crisis is instrumental to their own goals and priorities. Housing has an impact on our health. Housing has an impact on our education. Housing has an impact on our access to nutritious foods. Housing has played a major role in structural racism and discrimination, and we can go on and on. Our podcast episodes aim to deepen our understanding of housing and its spillover impacts, explore the substantial research out there, and we are bringing in the experts to chat about it. So thank you for joining us today and let's get into this episode. Welcome everyone to today's episode. This episode will be a little different. In case you missed it, the Opportunity Starts at Home campaign hosted the first of a three-part webinar series on building multi-sector housing partnerships to advance federal housing policy. The webinar features leaders from the campaign's network in climate, health, and education discussing why they have joined the campaign and how their sectors are embracing housing policy as a need to achieve their own goals and priorities. For more information on the series, check out our website, opportunityhome.org. And without further ado, let's jump into the recording. So hello, everyone. Thanks so much for joining us today for the kickoff of our three-part webinar series on building multi-sector partnerships to advance housing policy. Today, you will hear from leaders in climate, health, and education sectors on building cross-sector partnerships to advance housing policy. Each of the speakers today are part of the Opportunity Starts at Home campaign, which is a multi-sector campaign for affordable homes. And I'll be the moderator today. I'm Chantel Wilkinson, the campaign manager of Opportunity Starts at Home. And before we begin, um, I'll let us hear a bit from one of our founders, Nan Roman. She is the president and CEO of the National Alliance to End Homelessness. Hey Chantel, thank you so much. And thanks for inviting me to participate and welcome to everybody for to this uh, very important webinar. Uh, I'm gonna take just a few minutes to describe uh, how we've gotten where we are in terms of the lack of affordable housing in the country and the impacts of the affordability crisis and also how Opportunity Starts at Home, OSA emerged uh, to address that crisis. Uh, as you know, housing affordability is a combination of the costs of housing and what people earn or mismatch between those two things. Often in the modern era throughout the 50s, 60s and 70s, uh, we had more than enough units of housing that were affordable to all poor and low income households. Even the lowest income people could generally find some type of housing that they could afford. Uh, that might include single room occupancy housing, boarding houses, apartments, and so on. Uh, of course, that housing wasn't always the safest housing or the healthiest housing, uh, but it was affordable. And of course, also there was a tremendous amount of racial segregation at the time. 
uh, and good housing in neighborhoods, in good neighborhoods was certainly not available to everyone, but generally people could find housing. Starting in the 60s and the 70s, 1960s and 70s, there was urban renewal and a lot of housing stock and indeed whole neighborhoods were lost. A lot of the supply of affordable housing was lost. There was also conversion of multifamily rental apartments to condominiums. I mean, prior to the 80s, you really couldn't, uh, except in a few places, you couldn't own an apartment. Uh, apartments were always rental. Now, of course, that's quite different. That eliminated a lot of the rental stock. And by the early 80s, there was a serious shortage of affordable housing, many fewer units um, than there were poor and low-income households that needed those. Um, uh, I was just going to say, I think that one manifestation of this loss of affordable housing uh, units was the emergence of homelessness in the early 1980s, which we had not had prior to that widespread homelessness since the Depression. The loss of, loss of affordable units and the rising cost of housing and the failure of incomes to keep up has, of course, continued and indeed increased uh, until today. And now the country is over 7 million units short of enough affordable housing um, for the households who need it. Uh, the minimum wage is $7.25 an hour, but a person would need $24 an hour to afford a modest two-bedroom home. Over 70% of extremely low income households are paying over half, well over half of their incomes for housing, which affects their ability to support their children, buy food, access health care, and generally to thrive. It's not a good situation, of course. And these problems disproportionately affect BIPOC populations who are the subject of widespread discrimination. For example, 20% of black households and 15% of Hispanic households are extremely low-income renters versus only 6% of white households. As housing affordability challenges have grown, it's become increasingly clear that the lack of safe, stable, and affordable housing also has significant negative impacts on other social and economic factors. People in poor quality, unstable, and unaffordable housing have much worse health outcomes. Uh, children in unstable and unhealthy housing do less well in school, and they often their families often have to move from school to school. People living in poor housing in disadvantaged neighborhoods cannot access healthy food or affordable food. Across the board, unstable, unaffordable housing impacts the ability of other social and economic sectors to meet their goals um, that they want to achieve in order for people to thrive. In 2016, the National Alliance to End Homelessness, my organization, the organization I'm with, the National Low-Income Housing Coalition, the Center on Budget and Policy Priorities and Children's Health Watch entered into discussions with the Melville Charitable Trust about building a coalition of organizations representing these other sectors uh, to strengthen the advocacy for housing that's affordable, safe and safe. Together we formed Opportunity Starts at Home to lift the visibility of the unmet need for affordable, equitable housing and to build political will by mobilizing far beyond just the housing field, which I have to note was not doing such a great job of getting housing onto the agenda uh, uh, by 2016. We created a steering committee and a roundtable with nearly 100 members from the faith, child welfare, food, health, 
incarceration, climate, behavioral health, education, race equity, gender equity, and uh, many other fields. We also have 15 state partners that bring uh, multi-sector coalitions together at the state level for federal advocacy. Our agenda at OSA is threefold, uh, rental subsidies for all who need them, flexible short-term funding for those who can basically afford their housing but are on the edge and for whom any economic crisis could result in them losing their homes, and capital to increase the supply of housing that's affordable. So that is a brief overview of the affordable housing crisis and what OSA is proposing to do about it. We very much appreciate having uh, our speakers here with us today and those of you attending. And I'm now gonna turn it back over to Chantelle Wilkinson, campaign manager, Opportunity Starts at Home campaign. She's gonna moderate the panel discussion. Yeah, thank you, Nan. And I thank you for the remarks and I echo the things that you said. And yeah, we're building this movement of all these diverse voices and we have a couple of them today. So let's jump into the panel. Um, today, you'll hear from Makita Harris. She is the senior policy advisor with the, with the um, sorry, <laughs> sorry about that. She is the senior policy analyst with the National Education Association. You'll also be hearing from Khalil Shahid. He is the senior policy advisor with the Natural Resources Defense Council. And you'll, hear, and you'll also hear from Jenna Jaritz O'Brien, who is a pediatrician. And she's gonna be speaking on behalf of the American Academy of Pediatrics. Uh, so let's get into the first question that I have for the speakers today, which is that um, all your organizations are, it's a range of different topics that you cover, a range of different priorities that, um, that you cover with your organizations. So if you can all speak to the mission of the organization and also explain why the organization is concerned with the lack of stable, affordable housing. start since I'm uh, not on mute. <laughs> um, again, Makita Harris, a senior policy analyst with National Education Association. Uh, NEA is uh, comprised of roughly 3 million uh, members. Um, we are the largest teacher union in the country, one of the largest unions in the country. Uh, our membership is comprised of uh, educators along all on all on all levels uh, including uh, not only teachers um, but we have uh, support staff um, ESPs education support staff paraprofessionals uh, we also have aspiring educators that are members those that are uh, still in school aspiring to become teachers or educators uh, we also have uh, retired uh, members um, and uh, members that are in higher ed so uh, that makes up roughly three million members um, in the country uh, so in terms of NEA's interest in term uh, with, with regards to housing uh, you know, we are well aware and very conscious of the connections between education and housing. It's been well documented uh, that housing uh, and, and educational outcomes are, you know, are, are intersect, intersected and um, housing has an impact on education um, for many families, many students. And, you know, actually for our teachers as well. Um, you know, educators are not immune to uh, housing uh, instability. Uh, we have uh, our education support paraprofessionals. Um, many are, are renters 
early career educators, those that are just starting out as teachers are uh, predominantly renters. Um, so the educators are not immune to the housing crisis or housing um, issues in this country. And I think, um, if, you know, COVID has pretty much made um, the home an epicenter in terms of, you know, education. So our interest as an organization around housing and the impact that it has on our members as educators as well as students um, is growing. Um, and it's also aligned with um, the racial and justice, uh, the racial and social justice uh, work and the priorities that we have as an organization. Um, I'll go next. Um, good afternoon, everyone. Um, <clears throat> uh, Khalil Shaheed uh, with, with the Natural Resources Defense Council based here in our DC office. Um, NRDC uh, is an international uh, nonprofit organization, nonprofit environmental organization, uh, you know, scientists, lawyers, uh, environmental and, uh, and uh, community health specialists, you know, we work on all areas of the environment, including you know air and water quality, um, you know, but also pollution and of course climate change, um, and you know because of that, you know our work, you know there's there's really no aspect of of our lives that our work doesn't touch, um, you know housing obviously being a key piece of that, um, you know um, our you know residential sector you know causes uh, you know or is responsible for about 14 you know roughly to 20 percent of our nation's carbon emissions. Um, you know, it is a huge bulk of, of where we spend our time, where we consume energy, um, you know, but, but there are also other um, environmental issues related to housing and the location of housing, uh, rising sea levels uh, that are threatening uh, many of our coastal cities uh, are, 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 are placing, you know, millions and actually billions of dollars worth of affordable housing properties um, at permanent risk um, and the families uh, who live there. Um, uh, you know, in increased uh, 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 incidents of extreme weather are placing, you know, many families uh, in harm's way uh, due to hurricanes, due to flooding um, and other uh, disasters such as what we saw happen uh, in Texas uh, um, earlier th this year with the, with the cold freeze, which also impacted, you know, uh, communities in cities such as Jackson, Mississippi. Um, and so all of these things, so the relationship between housing um, and the environment uh, is, is one that is very key for us, um, you know, but also important housing, you know, is just critical to the stability uh, of communities uh, and the workers who we are going to be relying upon, you know, to build this new sustainable future. Um, and, 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 and meeting those challenges are not going to be done through environmental policy. It's not going to be done through energy policy, but it's going to be done through housing policy. And so, and so as an environmental organization, we've learned that we need to engage, uh, you know, genuinely and very forthrightly uh, in advocacy around affordable housing, um, you know, for the workers, for the families, for the communities uh, that we need to be our heroes uh, and sheroes to lead this transition forward uh, to save us uh, from uh, the worst effects of climate change. And so over, over the years, you know, working with our partners uh, in, in, in energy efficiency um, and now through uh, Opportunity Starts at Home, you know, we've really become to uh, internalize that message uh, that's best captured uh, in the slogan, uh, housing policy is climate policy for us. And I guess I'll go last. It's nice to be here. My name is Jana Gortz O'Brien. I use she her pronouns. I'm a pediatrician 
um, out here in Minneapolis, but I'm here today representing the American Academy of Pediatrics. We are an organization of 67,000 pediatricians uh, committed to the optimal physical, mental, and social health and well-being of all infants, children, adolescents, and young adults. And I think it's very clear to most of the people on this call that housing is health and has tremendous impact on the children, youth, and families that we serve. We know that health begins where we live, learn, work, and play, and the AAP knows this as well. And I think if you ask any pediatrician, we are seeing this play out now more than ever, as I think we are across sectors. So I'm so glad we're here together kind of having this conversation. Um, so the AAP's advocacy work is driven by our peer-reviewed policy statement. So just kind of giving you a sense of how we roll, essentially, and how we make policy happen. So our work together is driven by the policy statements we put forth, and those go out to pediatricians across the country and the work that we do individually with patients and also in our communities and as a national organization. Um, in 2013, the AAP stepped up with a policy statement about providing care for children and adolescents facing homelessness and housing insecurity, and really outlined the effects that homelessness and housing insecurity have on children, children's health and potential. Um, and it made several recommendations. And one key one that really has been a driving force in this work for our organization was that pediatricians and the AAP um, could advocate for the needs of homeless children and families by supporting local, state, and federal policies that lead to increased availability of low-income, um, transitional, and permanent housing. Um, so that has been one of our policy statements, and that's been since 2013. So I feel like we were a little late to this game, but we are here and we're at the table, and I think we all know that housing is health. Um, I think the other piece here is that the AAP is committed to eliminating health inequities and disparities, and we know that opportunity, including opportunities for health, start at home, as this is so aptly named. So um, this includes children and adolescents and healthcare professionals addressing social and behavioral drivers of health, including housing, when we're in our individual interactions, but it also includes advocating and identifying elimination of and eliminating racist policies and inequities that show up and contribute to racial disparities. So housing is one place where we all know that racism shows up and it shows up again and again here, and it has significant implications for the health and well-being of children. So I think those are two key policy statements in our organization that drives this work forward. Um, in terms of what we've done so far, um, we've become a member of this coalition and we are super excited to be here and be a part of it. When the pandemic hit, we were also uh, glad to see the eviction moratorium put into place. We advocated for extending that initial moratorium last summer. We're excited that the CDC issued a subsequent eviction moratorium. We supported that action in several court cases also. We filed some amicus briefs here as well. Um, and really, we are encouraging every single one of our members to recognize that housing is health, and especially during this pandemic. So we're here at the table, we're ready to do cross-sector work and kind of impact to impact housing and health together. Yeah, thank you all. I think that, again, I think kind of echoing your messages, if we're talking about education, our climate, our health, I think you guys just made a really clear statement about how your organizations are really thinking about these things. And Jana, I know you said that you're being late to the game, but Khalil, he shakes his head like, no, no, you're not. And part of this building this multi-sector coalition is just getting that, just getting that work forward, moving that work forward. So thank you all for sharing about that. And we'll jump now into the individual questions to dig deeper into these connections. And Makita, you are the first one for your individual question. Um, so my question to you is that research shows that children, they do better in school when they live in 
safe, decent, affordable housing. And there's a lot of talk, this national conversation for the past 20 years about education reform, but often um, that lacks the focus on the connection between housing policy and education policy. And at the NEA, there, you guys have joined the campaign because you understand this inextricable link, this inextricable link between stable housing and high educational achievement. Um, so how do you think about these connections and how do you think that we get more education groups involved in housing advocacy? Well, I mean, I think, you know, a lot of education groups, you know, most education groups, if not all, are very aware of the impact of housing on education and the impact of the generational historical systemic impact, uh, impacts of systemic racism um, and how it shows up <clears throat> with regards to where we live, uh, where we learn, etc. So uh, I, you know, I can't really speak for all education groups, but you know, I don't think that, you know, there's any education group that doesn't acknowledge, you know, that that's been an ongoing issue with regards to public, especially public education in this country. Um, I will point out in terms of the National Education Association, uh, we are a union. Um, so um, really um, education policy is housing policy and housing policy and education policy are also workers' rights issues. Um, so from our standpoint, you know, we see that connection. Um, I think, you know, in terms of, um, when you say getting education groups involved in housing advocacy, um, I think one of the things that helps, and you know, to uh, Jana's point, having these conversations around, you know, a, a multi-sector approach um, is really important. I think reframing how we think about these, you know, different policies and the impact on communities is really important. Um, you know, it, it's not a, a either or. You know, it's a it's a both and. And I think this previous year has taught us, has showed us that if we, you know, had any doubts before. So um, having conversations, um, you know, just bringing more education groups to the table, um, inviting more education groups to have these conversations. Um, I really, you know, that, that's just, I think that's the first step. Um, one of the advantages I'll say as far as National Education Association, like I said, we, over the last five years in particular, we have made um, addressing racial justice in education a priority. Um, we've made addressing educational equity and racial disparities um, and the impact that it has on our, on our students, the school to prison pipeline, et cetera, as a priority in, term, in addition to Black Lives Mattering as a priority in schools. Um, so, one of the advantages I think my department has, um, and I'll uh, reference my director, Harry Lawson, who's director of human and civil rights at, at NEA, is that we, we have a pretty um, diverse staff that um, has different backgrounds. Um, to your, you know, to your point, you know, we, we have folks that, you know, are not just, you know, uh, uh, subject matter experts on education policy, but also have a background like Harry Lawson, Lawson our director um, in housing. Um, uh, I have uh, experience in housing on housing policy as well as public health. So I think that's also helped 
um, you know, having these conversations in these, you know, education spaces and um, providing a broader lens um, to these conversations. Um, so, you know, just framing it around equity also, you know, has helped us um, to have these conversations that brings in conversations around health, about um, uh, housing, about environmental justice, and the, all of the impact that it has um, on our educator members as well as students. Thank you, Nikita, and, and uplifting something that you said there too, which is a way that we frame a lot of the conversations that we have at Opportunity Starts at Home about like education advocates are housing advocates, health advocates are housing advocates. It's like they're, they're, you know, we are the same advocates. We're advocating for a lot of issues that kind of impact and have spillover impacts. And then you also touched on equity, which we do have a question um, later on that will kind of expand that more, talk a bit about that more, but how racial equity plays a part in these spillover impacts between housing and education and you know how, how does all of that um, have a link to each other so thank you so much for, for your response with that um, and I'll move on to Khalil. Khalil um, you recently stated in an article that housing has a critical role to play in the fight against climate change and must be seen as a front and center um, to that effort and so why must housing be a part of any plan to address climate change? Right, yeah, I think I covered it a little bit uh, in uh, my intro, but just but just to go back, I, I think that you know we, we need to look at it in two ways. One, there is the direct impact that our housing and our building sector, you know, much more widely, but, but really our residential sector has on um, our nation's carbon emissions. Um, again, you know, we, we spend the majority of our time, if we're fortunate, uh, you know, in, in our homes, and, and that's where we consume um, the most energy. And so, you know, the way that our homes are constructed, where they're constructed, um, all impact, um, you know, the way that we consume energy, both within the home, you know, but also in the, um, in the um, additional footprint of transportation. Um, and so, you know, just as we think about, you know, housing and transportation combined as being a part of an affordability metric, um, you know, the other, the other piece that, that we're going to have to add to that now is also energy. Um, is, is, is also a key, a, a key, a key uh, factor uh, in that. And so the direct impact that our uh, energy consumption in the home has on climate. But then also as a nation, as we're trying to respond to the challenge of climate change, housing is going to be a key factor in making it possible for individuals, for families, for communities to be able to meet that challenge, to be able to make that transition. Um, you know, if we are shutting down cold-fired power plants in one community and that family needs to relocate to another community to find a well-paying job, again, energy policy is not going to help them move. The Department of Energy is not going to help them move. That's going to come through our engagement and, and ensuring that we have resources and supports available for people through HUD, through other housing initiatives to make that possible for them to be able to do that. And so, and so the second piece of that is, is, is what I like to call the enabling function that housing provides. It, it provides that stability for people to be able to engage uh, in this conversation, to be able to get to, to be able to engage uh, in this uh, green transition. And so it, it's just, just a critical element. Yeah, absolutely. And to that point of moving, right, and getting people more into the conversation, make sure they're more involved. It's a broader view. Again, I think some people could get tunnel vision when it comes to climate and the things that we talk about, but also a big piece there is mobility and people having access to these conversations in green space. So 
Thank you for that. Jenna, um, the link between housing and health is clearer than ever, you know, in the light of the COVID-19 pandemic. During the pandemic, as leaders recommended that the public stay home to avoid community spread, many people experiencing housing instability and homelessness were at especially high risk. So what have we learned from COVID-19 about the connections between health and housing and how can health advocates help inform housing solutions? Yeah, I'm so glad this question is in here because I think the COVID-19 pandemic really just revealed some major challenges in our systems and our and significant inequities in our system. It just unveiled them. I think we've seen this across sectors um, too. So I think I'm seeing some nods. So yes, I, I think we're seeing this across sectors. We really kind of just pulled the, uh, pulled the uh, oh my gosh, pulled the sheet back and we saw, oh my gosh, we are really, we're in trouble. And we knew even long before the pandemic that there are significant health risks associated with the experience of homelessness and specifically the experience of marginalization and systems involvement that comes with it and all of the health risks associated with the experience of homelessness and of housing instability too. So we knew that long before the pandemic. And I think we saw that it, those of us who work in housing have seen that. I work in shelter with young people experiencing homelessness. We saw that long before the COVID-19 pandemic, but then we throw this pandemic into the mix and we really, it just highlighted the, the link, right? I mean, we saw that young people um, and children and families were at higher risk of entry into homelessness, right? The, those who were living right on the edge of that housing instability, my patients who I was seeing who were saying, I may not, I'm making decisions between my next rent check and my food on the table and my healthcare bills. Those folks, with the financial strain of the pandemic put them over the edge and they're at higher risk of entering homelessness in the first place. We also know that people who are experiencing homelessness or who are unstably housed also might have a higher likelihood of untreated chronic medical conditions, putting them at higher risk for more complicated COVID-19 disease. So they were heightened and just further compounded disparities and inequities that we were seeing to begin with related to housing. We also see challenges, especially with the young people that I work with, where those resources that had been available at school, at, in their communities, in their neighborhoods that were available were cut right off when this pandemic hit too. They were isolated. And then finally, this messaging around public health campaigns, stay at home, shelter in place, it just rubs salt in the wound of this. I mean, it really is just asking people to adhere to guidelines to stay safe that are impossible for many of the young people and families that I work with. So I think um, we can do better. I think the second part of your question related, what can we do? What can we do better? And we just led a study with um, adolescent health leaders across, looking at health leaders across the um, US and Canada saying, well, what are you doing in your communities? We're still figuring out what the impact is gonna be, but what can we do from a policy perspective? And a big part of that was housing, um, was housing young people. And I think it was one of the major themes that emerged um, in our analysis. And I think what we heard loud and clear was, look, providing single occupants housing for folks is key and making sure we stabilize families and young people that are at risk of becoming homeless, it was essential. So we need a really strong housing system to start to prevent anything like this from ever happening again. And then we also need to be prepared that in the setting of emergencies, we are ready to have housing available for folks, whether it's not only for folks that are um, who have COVID-19 and who need isolation and quarantine, but to prevent the spread by providing housing directly. And quite frankly, we should be doing that anyway, even outside of the pandemic. But um, in this moment, for sure, we need housing. Um, and we need it fast, honestly. Um, I'll pause there. There's a lot we can go on. 
Yeah. Yeah, that's great. Just really pointing out that housing is a solution, right? And also pointing out there just when experiencing the crisis, which is something that Nan also talked about in the beginning, which is one of our third policy buckets is just emergency assistance. So in this time of like crisis, there's all these things piling up and it's happening quicker than ever um, in a very short period of time. And that ends up being a spiral for folks, um, which then puts them in a really, really tough situation, a tough, a tough um, thing to navigate for them too. And having to do that in a pandemic has been especially hard. So thank you so much for that. And so um, I do want to plug in here that we um, we do have like Q&A in the chat box. So if you do have a question, please make sure that you place it in the chat box and we'll try to get to it at the end of the Q&A session um, for those of you who are with us today. And we'll move on to the third question, which um, is for everyone. Uh, and a lot of you touched on this topic already. So just wanted to give it a, a, a space to really talk about it. Um, because of decades of structural racism, we see tremendous racial disparities across our country. In housing, racial inequities manifest in terms of who struggles to afford the rent, who gets evicted, who experiences homelessness, who lives in a neighborhood of concentrated poverty, and who struggles the most with wealth building. And these racial inequities in housing, they have a spillover impact to many other sectors, as a lot of you guys touched on, um, including each of the sectors that you all represent. Um, so can you speak to the racial inequities that um, in housing and how those racial inequities impact um, the field of work, your field of work? Let's see, like Khalil, you jump in first, yeah. Sure, I'll go first. Yeah, th there are a number of cases. And so, you know, first and foremost, you know, we see huge disparities, uh, you know, both by race, uh, you know, but also uh, by, by income uh, distinctions between, you know, renter and homeowner, all of that is, is mediated by racialized politics uh, in housing. Uh, but, but we see huge disparities uh, in uh, energy cost burdens. Um, you know, Black and Latino households, you know, really across the board in almost every geography, uh, you know, have, you know, the highest energy burdens, uh, meaning that they, they spend they spend a larger proportion of their income on household energy needs uh, than, than, than others. They are, they are most at risk of, of, of seeing their uh, energy utilities cut uh, due to arrears, which is, which, which is particularly important, um, you know, now during this pandemic, you know, we, we, we fought with, with other partners, um, you know, to make sure that there were uh, moratoriums, not only on, on evictions, but also moratoriums on utility shutoffs, um, you know, because if people weren't, be, weren't able to keep cool in summer or to keep warm in winter, um, or to be able to keep their water running, um, you know, because, because in many places, uh, water shutoffs, which is, which is another utility issue that we're very concerned about, was a way that landlords were able to, sub, were able to subvert, um, you know, evictions moratoriums because they could be evicted if they didn't have water. Uh, going into the home. And so rising water costs were a way that, 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 that landlords were getting around uh, eviction moratoriums uh, in, in, in some spaces. Um, and so, you know, we see disparities there. We see huge disparities uh, in the location of homes, you know, who's in harm's way when we're talking about climate related uh, uh, weather events and, and extreme weather, uh, whether it be flooding, uh, you know, th th those types of things. We, we see the legacy of redlining um, in, the, in the amount of tree cover that, that various neighborhoods have, which increases the, the, the 
the local uh, you know heat index uh, you know for those communities because they lack the tree cover. So we see you know you know one for one uh, uh, a relationship between legacies of redlining and the lack of tree cover, which uh, increases the incidence of uh, heat related illnesses um, and death. Uh, you know particularly for uh, elderly resident residents uh, at home, which also again increases uh, energy costs, particularly uh, in in the summers. I'm happy to pipe in next on this one because I think uh, we have some similar themes here with respect to the impact of housing on health um, and I um, and the disparities that have emerged. I think we also in health are seeing the are still seeing the long, of course we are because they're still going on the legacy of redlining um, as well. So I think that housing in particular in neighborhoods and where young people and children and families are living without a doubt translate directly to the disparities we see in health. Um, even the quality and safety of housing has direct impacts on the disparities that we see in health. Um, we know that young people of color and children and families of color are much more likely to live in homes that are unsafe or, and to be displaced from those homes and to be evicted. So I think a big part of what we have to do in order to mitigate these disparities and start to rectify our long history, unfortunately, and legacy of racism in this country is housing people and providing them with not only housing, but safe, affordable housing that is good for health. And a lot of what I think about when I think about what a healthy neighborhood looks like and what healthy housing looks like relates to a lot of what Khalil is bringing up, which is having green space, having safe, having safe neighborhoods, having areas where young children can learn to grow and play. And we're not seeing that right now. And we're seeing, we're not seeing that right now in many of our communities of colors and many of our um, communities that have been historically marginalized. So I think when we look at the stark disparities that we see in healthcare going from the time of infant and child mortality and perinatal mortality um, for women of color and specifically black women in this country, all the way up to the disparities that we see in adolescence and young adulthood among, um, among young, uh, young people experiencing homelessness. We see that across the board and there is no doubt in my mind that a lot of that relates to a history of racism with housing um, and the communities that we live in and the neighborhoods we live in. Um, I just can't say it enough, housing is health. I also think when we think about policies then, and we think about how do we do this work, I think we need to be prioritizing policies that are intentionally anti-racist and that we think of with respect to housing. And I think that will directly have an impact and translate to improved health disparities and reduced inequities when it comes to young people and the children and families that we aim to serve as pediatricians. So yes, housing is health, I think shelter, saves lives and we know that and having safe neighborhoods save lives as well and for the children and families we work with we need to be thinking about housing as a key social driver of health and a key social driver of health disparities and inequities uh yeah i guess i can just uh continue the theme <laughs> of the impact of uh systemic racism uh with regards to uh housing uh, around the, you know related to redlining um inequitable distribution of resources and neighborhoods etc i think uh for national education association um this was a particularly hard year for our members as well as our students like on as as with everyone um and we know that these things were you know brought to the forefront exacerbated um unfortunately <clears throat> the inequity you know continued and and it unfortunately increased 
uh, with regards to um, really, you know, um, as simple as uh, which students, you know, was able to get a quality or as close to a quality education at home and, and those that weren't. Um, so, you know, we have a lot of students that were already left behind due to the inequities before COVID. And, you know, that's just worsened. Um, so there's a, some huge significant gaps. Um, another thing that we have uh, conversations about when we talk about racial justice is uh, the trauma that uh, BIPOC communities um, experience, particularly students. And um, to be quite honest, our members as educators, um, educators of color who are dealing with not only with the racial inequity of being uh, of, as in the educational profession, but being in these communities and dealing with uh, the disparate impact of COVID um, had in, in their own families. Um, so this has all been compounded. So um, there's a lot of work to do. Um, and, you know, there's, I think, the current administration has made some efforts in terms of, uh, you know, a step in the right direction. Um, but, you know, it's going to take, uh, you know, a, quite a lift uh, to address some of the inequities, as well as try to address the continued <laughs> ongoing inequity. So, you know, again, it's, it's both and. Yeah, thank you all. And that last point, um, touching on that is that touching on the past and also what's happening happening in the present and how these things have been compounded through opportunity starts at home we talk about like you know housing has um, housing is 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 like the center to what you have access to what education you could have access to what health you have access to what nutritious foods you have access to what transportation you have access to and when you layer that on top with like an intentional racial um, you know, racial disparity, racial um, treating people of people of color in a way that that's manufactured to create those disparities within those organizations and communities. Um, I feel like the the line in which those things are connected become much more clear if they're not already clear for a lot of folks. You know, the ways that racial inequity is within everything that we're talking about um, when we're talking about the solutions and the problems that we see in a lot of communities, especially in the ways that they show up for people of color. Um, and so thank you all for, for responding to that question. And we're gonna move on into another individual um, 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 section where you all have an individual question. Um, and I'll, I'll go with you, Makita, first. Um, so you also mentioned this, that you have a background that's diverse. You have a background in education and housing and health and racial equity, um, and you've done them on, on the local, state, and federal level. And often we hear many times that the housing solutions that we advocate for should be handled at the state and local level. Given your multi-sector and multi-level background with these issues, why is federal government involvement critical to advancing these solutions? <laughs> That's a hefty one, uh, and I'll uh, I'll invite uh, all of our other <laughs> panelists to, to chime in. Um, but uh, you know, we know the state and local governments can't do everything alone. You know, resource-wise, um, programming services-wise, um, tech. You know, generally speaking, federal policy. You know, there's a couple of important levers um, that it provides and roles that it serves. Uh, obviously, 
in terms of funding. Um, but then, you know, there is um, a really important role that federal policy sh should play, um, often does play, um, can do a better job at playing. <laughs> And that is, you know, around fairness and ensuring equity um, and, uh, you know, uh, strengthening protections, uh, whether it's rental assistance um, or, you know, around uh, educational equity. So, you know, the federal policy is very important. I think, you know, rather than thinking of local, state and federal policy, you know, really successful solutions should be you know, existing on all of the different levels, right? That's that's the ideal scenario. Um, so, you know, I guess, you know, in terms of addressing disparities, the role uh, of federal, po federal policy plays an important role. Um, but like I said, you know, there, you know, it doesn't always do the best job, but it's necessary. You know, it's necessary in addition to the state and the local, um, you know, policy around, um, in my case, education policy or even health housing policy. And I'm welcome, uh, welcome Khalil or Jana to chime in as well. <laughs> I do a good enough job. <laughs> sure does look like it, sure does look like it. So we'll move on, we'll move on. Uh, we'll move on to Khalil. <laughs> Khalil, the Natural Resources Defense Council um, is one of the newest members of the campaign steering committee. And our question for you is, has engagement with the campaign helped to strengthen NRDC's housing advocacy? And if so, how? Um, yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, again, you know, this is for us and, 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 and you know, I, I, I feel like the environmental community, you know, deserves, you know, a, you know, a little bit of of you know, of you know, congratulations or, or whatever have you. Um, you know, we have been uh, attempting to be much more self-reflective uh, in the way that we approached a lot of these questions, um, the way that we communicate about them. Like, like you know, you 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 have heard, uh, you know, the you know the saying, oh, you know, it's not just about polar bears, um, although the polar bear is our logo, um, and and we do care about those too. Um, that, but, but that, you know, our environment, uh, you know, is about more than that. And so, and, and, and so, you know, this work, you know, with housing, you know, has really been, um, you know, the, the leverage point, I think, for opening up a much broader conversation uh, in how we gauge, you know, outside of the traditional, you know, realm of environmental policy or, or energy policy, but into, um, you know, spaces that we that we traditionally, you know, have not gone into. Um, you know, I, I think it's also, I, th I think, you know, you see it when you hear the government or, or you hear the Biden administration talk about uh, wanting a whole government approach uh, to the question of climate change. Um, you know, that means more than just, you know, finding the carbon emissions, you know, in each department. That means figuring out what each department, what each, what each, you know, federal agency, you know, can do to help facilitate this transition. Um, and so, and that's, and that, and the answer to that is going to be unique, whether we're talking about DHS, whether we're talking about HUD, whether we're talking about USDA, EPA, et cetera. But, but each agency has a role to play in helping us to manage this transition. Um, and, and again, you know, I just can't stress enough, you know, housing is obviously the central element you know, you know, within people's lives. Um, and, and, and I should also mention this administration has 
you know, issued, uh, you know, a plan uh, to cut carbon emissions from the residential sector by half by 2035. Uh, that is a little less than 15 years away. Uh, so we so, but but that implies a great deal of investment uh, coming into the housing sector. Uh, you know, to retrofit those homes, uh, to to replace gas lines with electric uh, uh, um, appliances, um, which also implies a lot of work. Um, but if we aren't careful with the way that those uh, investments are funneled into the, into the residential sector, we could increase costs on those families who are most vulnerable. And so again, a conversation between our energy and our climate policy and housing policy is key in making this whole government approach work and work in a way that benefits um, those families who need it most. Yeah, communication there, right? Having these communications between um, people in these fields to even kind of map out what are those things that might have a negative impact on communities? What are those things that uh, we need to address that also make sure that the solutions that we're pushing for are holistic to the individuals and the people that we're trying to, to serve? And so thank you, Khalil, for that. I'm gonna move on to Jenna again for your last individual question. Um, your background as a pediatrician and your research focus on the healthcare of the youth experiencing homelessness provides direct access and information to the experiences of our nation's youth. So can you speak to what you have learned in your work and how these connections show up in the daily lives of people that you engage with? Yeah, I'm so glad we're talking about this question. I think youth are often left out of the conversation when we talk about housing. So I'm glad we're having this conversation. I'm also glad that education is at the table too because I think they know it well and I see Bikina nodding. Um, wow, it's a big question. So with, with respect to how we see young people and youth experiencing homelessness and how that shows up with respect to their health, I mean, our, much of our work has shown over and over again that housing, again, is the foundation of health. And I've said that over and over, so I'm not going to hammer that home. I think the thing that's exciting about our work, and I think what it highlights and models for our work at the housing level at community, state, and federal levels, as Makita was advocating, including all three of those levels, I think is that we really need to be doing this work with communities, in partnership with communities, in partnership with young people who are experiencing homelessness and across sectors. Um, so much of the work that I do in terms of our research is community-based participatory research. And what that means is that we're not an academic center coming in and doing research on a community. We are, we are hopefully, and what we strive to be, is an organization coming in to work directly hand in hand with community to figure out solutions and strategies that work in partnership with young people. Um, and I think really what's been key to all of that is having multiple sectors at the table kind of having these conversations with community and with partnerships. And I think a lot of that work is now translated into advocacy work that we're doing at the community level, the state level, and at the now hopefully at the federal level too, to kind of say, look, how can we walk hand in hand with people who are having these experiences? Um, and who are experiencing housing and stability and homelessness, how do we make sure that they are included with lived, those are, with the lived experiences are included at the table? Um, I think there is abundant literature that shows that there is a tremendous impact of housing on health and our work and our research corroborates that. But I think really what I've taken home as an individual kind of learning and having the privilege to work in communities and with young people is that when we have them on the, at the table, they really have tremendous knowledge and expertise on these issues and they need to be included in the policies that we're working on too. Um, in particular with youth, um, I mentioned that they're left out of the conversation. They also tend to be dismissed and undervalued. The young people and families that I work with who are experiencing 
homelessness and youth um, homelessness and housing instability are oftentimes the most resilient and savvy young people and families that I work with. And I think that as communities and as policy folks who are trying to influence policy, we need to really highlight the strengths, the strengths of these communities and of the people with lived experiences there. And we need to bring them to the table, not only to these conversations, but um, to policy conversations we're having with policymakers about this. Um, so I think that's a big kind of take home point from work that we do. Um, there was a question in the chat that I think relates to this that I think is worth mentioning too. So some of the work that we've done in partnership with community has been about building in supportive housing and healthcare um, options within other sectors. So I also work in school-based health and I also work in shelter-based healthcare. So I think those are really good examples of times when we cross sectors in our work directly with youth and families, where we are across sectors working in schools with ch children, youth and families experiencing homelessness or in shelter with children, youth and families experiencing homelessness. And I think that that work needs to be prioritized and thinking about how can we at the community level be working together to meet people where they are at. As a healthcare provider, I think there's a mentality that like, oh, they can come to us when they need us. But I really think we need to be going to them and being embedded with community and walking alongside them as we, um, people experiencing homelessness as we do this work. Um, so I just, I cannot emphasize that enough. And that was a great question in the chat related to that. Um, and yes, in the daily lives, I think, and how do they show up in the daily lives of people we engage with? I think, I think they're grateful to be a part of the conversation. And quite frankly, I think they deserve to be a part of the conversation. So I hope that we can continue to include include folks with lived experiences with this um, and be in contact with our communities at every step. Thank you. And I think this is a great way to open it up to Q&A in the last few minutes that we have here of the webinar. So I don't know if anyone else has any feedback on that question, but I'll read it out to you all. Um, the question goes, um, have any of the panelists seen supportive housing investments by anchor institutions in the community, healthcare systems, hospitals, as a way to reduce um, preventable um, ER visits, hospitalizations, like can you, um, and can these investments be promoted? So just that community angle piece, um, if anyone else wants to reply. This one's was kind of based more on health, but I don't know if anyone else has any feedback on that as well. Um, I guess I could say, you know, one of the things that I failed to mention um, with regards to NEA and other education groups um, is one thing that I think COVID um, provided us was to really think about public education differently and the classroom differently and how we uh, in, engage with our students. Um, differently. Um, one of the things that we're a huge uh, supporter of are community schools. Um, the Biden's plan does um, fund, uh, I think, about $40 million toward community schools, but uh, we do see them um, in the future. There are some in local districts now, but we do see them as a best practice model in terms of um, an improved education, public education system for, for students. And really what community schools are all about is just, you know, exactly what it is. You know, you know having the schools have connections with community partners, be, have the school be, uh, serving as a hub in communities. Um, 
ensuring that students and families get access to wraparound services. Um, so, you know, healthcare, um, health coverage, et cetera, being one of those. Um, it's served as a great model in, certain, in some local school districts. And I think it does have potential um, to help address some of these issues. Um, being a union, and like I said, uh, you know, I feel as though housing policy is also a workers' rights policy. Um, uh, I'm a strong pro uh, pro uh, supporter of uh, bargaining, you know, our, our members bargaining, uh, you know, around housing issues. Um, they're being act impacted by housing issues that's also impacting education um, and impacting their jobs and, the, and, the, and their students. And so we're seeing more of that uh, when our uh, members go to the negotiating table. Um, there have been some examples of where uh, members are taking upon themselves to actually include um, housing issues um, when they go to bargain. So those are two things that Im immediately come to mind. I'd like to build on that community schools thing. Can I add to that? Is that all right? I want to build on the community schools piece. So as somebody who works in both school-based health centers, uh, as has worked in school-based health centers as part of a community school, which was one part of that, providing healthcare directly on site. That was actually how I started to, as a young pediatrician, started to learn and see the impact of housing on health. So again, I think it's a really great model of cross-sector work at the community level that can be funded, just to answer the hard question that Makita got, to how that can be funded and supported at the national level as a national priority. I think school-based health centers can be a big part of that. It's not, necessary, not necessary that every community school has a school-based health center, but I do think many of them do, and those models work really well, and there's strong evidence that it helps with addressing both the social drivers of health and also reducing, and, uh, reducing health disparities and improving health outcome. It is a key equity intervention to have healthcare, schools, housing, and community resources linked together. So I think housing is health and also connecting cross-sector communication or cross-sector work to connect folks where they are in community is just essential. I think community schools is a really beautiful model for that. Yeah, thank you, thank you. And I, well, we just have a minute left actually, so let's wrap it up. Um, but thank you all for joining us today. And we had a couple of questions about recording. So recording will be available um, for those of you who would like to share it with your networks. Um, some contact information was also asked. Um, so we can share it, we will share it with you all as well. Um, and uh, there are some other questions in here that um, we'll ask our panelists to get back to you. We'll just collect all that information for you all. But otherwise, I would like to thank all of the panelists today for joining us to speak about um, multi-sector partnerships. And as we mentioned in the beginning, this is part of a three-part series. So please stay tuned um, as we put more information out on the, the next few webinars that we will host. And I wanna thank you all for joining us today. Thank you. Everyone. Mm -hmm.